Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right, so welcome to uh, this new episode. My name is Victor Monin, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Hans-Jörg Reinberger, uh, Honorary Professor of History of Science at the Technical University of Berlin, and also Director Emeritus at uh, the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. And uh, so first of all, thank you so much, uh, Professor, for having accepted my invitation to discuss, uh, to discuss your latest book, uh, Split and Splice, uh, Phenomenology of Experimentation, uh, which has been just recently published um, at the University of Chicago Press. Um, so to, to start delving into, uh, in, in, into the matter at, at hand today, uh, in, in your book, you, you concern yourself with uh, scientific experimentation. And um, to, quote, to quote you at the very beginning of the book, you um, characterize scientific experimentation as, quote, a knowledge-generating procedure. And uh, in order to approach this procedure, um, you, you decide to do it from a very particular uh, angle, uh, I might say. The book is actually divided in two parts, respectively titled Infra experimentality and supra-experimentality. And it seems to be that you're trying to hold together both hands of a spectrum. Uh, and uh, I, I was wondering what kind of point of view you're, you're, you're trying to propose here to adopt on scientific experimentation and how is approaching scientific experimentation from these two ends of the same spectrum differ maybe from previous ways in which historians or philosophers of science have approached this question so far? Yeah, um, so you jump right into the middle of, <laughs> of things. Um, you, are, uh, um, you are completely right. So the division of the book is um, between infra and, and supra um, um, tries to catch um, two flies with one stroke, so to speak. On the one hand, what I wanted to do is to get um, a vision, 
that we could ad address as um, a perspective from below. So really going into the fine-grained details of, uh, of the scientific process of experimentation. On the other hand, it is also very clear, and uh, I'm aware of that, is that you can get lost in these details. Um, experimentation is a procedure that uh, flows uh, through all our modern sciences, basically at least um, all of them, and has a long tradition behind itself already. So there is also broader and bigger features uh, that uh, do not come into, um, into view and into perspective if you deal with experimentation from a purely philosophical point of view, um, a, a kind of abstraction of the experimental process. And I wanted to make it concrete. On the one hand, concrete in terms of hands-on, on the other hand, concrete uh, to kind of give the impression that we have to do with a historical process that is extending over time. And for this reason, the division of the book, uh, I have chosen the division of the book as it is now. It, it seems to me, um, if I can continue on this, on this division between the infra and the supra, uh, that in a way you were also trying to uh, intentionally avoid uh, the most uh, blindly visible part of of experimentation because I, 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 at least the way I interpreted your use of infra and supra here is kind of an analogy with uh, the electromagnetic uh, spectrum and the idea that if we're in the infra and the supra, we are not situating ourselves in... Uh, the, the visible field, uh, in a way, what's directly visible to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, is a nice, this is a nice association. Actually, I did not think about it. So, but, so it, it seemed to yeah. me that you were eluding what appears to be conveniently directly visible to us when we are considering experimentation. So I was wondering, is, is, was, was that intentional in a way? Were you trying to avoid certain pitfalls, maybe in which philosophers and historians have previously fall when uh, looking at, at experimentation? Yeah. Yes, uh, very consciously um, I have been choosing this and also the division uh, because um, 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 I think you're right with respect to the infra and the supra, both of these realms, if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, in a way escape our senses. So usually if you write from a purely, if you write about the experiment from a purely philosophical uh, standpoint or uh, perspective, uh, you deal with science and with results, uh, with scientific results as they are presented in publications. So there is no direct experience of the experimental process behind it. Um, and this, the experimental process as it takes place in the laboratory is of course something that is not available for everybody. Um, people who are not 
trained in a particular science and do not have this kind of uh, practical background. In a way, it, it, it's not easy to grasp what is going on there just by, by taking, taking a, a published record that usually also does not, um, does not um, uh, confront you with the, uh, the nitty-gritty of the experimental process, but just with a um, um, as clear-cut as possible presentation of the results, which is something different. And also with respect to the historical perspective, this is also something that in one way or the other is beyond our immediate and daily uh, experience. So we have to consider a longer process that has been taking place in time and we need to reconstruct this process. So it is not, it is not immediately before our eyes. So a historical perspective also has this kind of, um, kind of uh, practical purpose to kind of make palpable that we have to do with something with uh, something that is not just a yes/no um, um, play, a game of yes and no, but is embedded into a sometimes very long historical process. So to, to talk about actually the the nitty gritty uh, that you just mentioned of the of the of the process and the fact that the experimental process in many ways. Uh, cannot be summarized by the sum of uh, the publications and public presentation of, of, of results. Um, the, the first part of the book, so uh, on infra-experimentality, is, is rich in illustration. And I thought that was also an interesting um, way in which the book is divided. Is that the first part is extremely rich in, in illustrations, whereas the, the second one shows none. So it's also illustrate these, the, the variety of approaches here. But uh, to stick to the first part and, and its richness of illustration, you show, for example, a picture of uh, nucleic acid sequence gel. You show lines of DNA code, uh, various models of protein syntheses and structures. Um, you also show experiment sheets. Uh, and, and I thought uh, that perfectly illustrate what you just mentioned about the, the, the needy greedy, what some call now the, the messiness of science. Um, uh, what what do we learn uh, from sci- uh, about scientific experimentation from bringing together all all, all these materials together? I think at, um, one of the one of the major points I I tried to make um, I uh, tried to make in this first part is uh, that um, the scientific process of um, uh, of um, uh, of doing uh, experiments and making palpable what we have under our hands when we are doing experiments is uh, that there are, that there are interestingly there are um, uh, very intricate um, mechanisms and procedures and options and possibilities of making things visible. And this is uh, something that dominates uh, the first part of the book throughout. Um, It is a kind of making visible that um, is not immediately 
uh, that we cannot immediately compare with what we see with our naked eyes. So we see contours, we see colors, we see um, uh, what have you. Uh, but what the, the kind of of visibilization that uh, we want to achieve in, in the sciences is uh, to make palpable how parameters hang together, sometimes only two, sometimes more, and finding ways of um, of of putting them before our eyes, which is a process of invention in a way also. Think only of uh, of the uh, of the of the kinds of visualization that um, um, uh, that statistics um, has developed over the past hundred years. All these schemes and schemata uh, uh, that we are now de- uh, that by now we are confronted with uh, uh, daily. Um, um, did not exist around 1800. They came into being as ways of making visible things that otherwise escape our uh, uh, our senses. And that's the reason. That's the reason for um, uh, for, for the for the richness of of, of figures uh, that um, uh, that dominate the first part, whereas. The second part deals with a different kind of visualization. When I, um, yeah, there's actually, if if I may continue to to, to discuss this um, this really rich ensemble of, of visualization, as you mentioned, and uh, and ways in which uh, experimental scientists are trying to to figure out the contours of of, of the things they're they're, they're targeting and, and studying, um, there. There, there is to be a, a, a notion that you bring at the very beginning of that of that part on inference experimentality that I would like you to comment on a bit because um, I had problem interpreting it really. Uh, you you talk about this realm of figures and 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 sheets, experimental sheets, the models, etc. As uh, you define it as an underworld, um, and you also say that it happens under the hands of the experimenters. And I thought it very interesting because to me, it seemed as if you were suggesting that this world of images and models, et cetera, uh, were not only sometimes lost to the historians and the philosophers of science, but somehow were paradoxically also lost to the scientists themselves, maybe. I, 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 it, um, I, I was struggling in interpreting what you meant really by happening under the hands of, uh, of experimenters, if there, if there were some uh, depth of meaning into, into that. Yeah. Um, the, um, we, we, we must not forget um, what, uh, being confronted with this um, plethora of, um, of, of, of visualizations that we can find also in, of course, also in the scientific literature um, and that are basically taken from that besides the, the experimental sheets that uh, are a bit nearer to, to the laboratory. Uh, what is usually forgotten is uh, uh, that these uh, uh, procedures and options and possibilities of making visible 
are connected to a research infrastructure, research technologies, um, and would not be uh, would not be possible without that. Yeah? For instance, the electron microscope creates a different kind of visual vi- visualization than the option that um, is given with uh, the use of radioactive tracers, for instance. Yeah? Worlds are between them. Uh, so they are inextricably connected to the research technologies. And there is a, a rich underworld of research technologies that is expanding and expanding in our days. So it, it is tremendous. It is also tremendously energy-consuming. We have to keep in our mind. Uh, um, uh, but this is usually is usually abstracted from when it comes to a scientific publication. And also, uh, scientists, of course, on the one hand, are used uh, to manipulate uh, these um, uh, these research technologies and to master them. Um, uh, but when it comes to present scientific results, they do not want to present their research technologies. They wanted to present their findings, <clears throat> always assuming, unconsciously assuming, that this background of, of, of research technologies is not interesting to the public. Although uh, the results would not have been possible without that. And this is a kind of conundrum that also scientists have to struggle with. Um, when they try uh, to to kind of uh, to to make their work uh, palpable to the to a broader public, for instance, but also to their colleagues. Yeah, I, I understand completely that that conundrum, and it seems like it also tragically, in a way, tied to the su- success of the experimental procedure in itself. Because as as these apparatus, as efficient as these apparatus get, they also get as invisible uh, because they function, <laughs> because they function. And, and also, of course, many of these research technologies um, um, over time uh, uh, become black boxed <laughs> and in a way uh, are themselves already made invisible, yeah? at least in, uh, in their intimate functioning. I, I appreciate you mentioning the, the, the black box because uh, one of the I think what one of the author that 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 came to uh, to my mind uh, when I was reading um, especially the the later part of uh, infra experimentality uh, portion of your book um, uh, actually has another concept also that I think is, is very similar uh, to uh, to one of yours in the book. Um, so at the, at, at the end of the first part, you talk about experimental protocols and experimental sheets and notations that happen throughout the experimental process. And you describe the laboratory as a writing system and, uh, quote, an indispensable space of notation for emergent knowledge, end quote. And uh, such a phrase really evoked uh, uh, Latour and Wiggler's description of the laboratory as a system of literary inscription. And that's what they write in uh, their book, Laboratory Life in 1979. Uh, 
what similarities? What similarities does your uh, approach to the laboratory as uh, a, a writing system uh, has with uh, Latour and Wiglerds, and how does it differ? Yeah, so uh, you are right. Uh, uh, the book of um, Bruno of Bruno Latour and Steve Wulgar uh, has been a great inspiration to me. Um, and sadly enough, um, um, Latour passed away last fall. Um, um, I, I knew him rather well. Um, and I've uh, had many discussions with him. Um, I think there is, um, but actually it's also, um, um, I, I, I think what I try to do in, in my book, uh, that contrasts a little bit uh, to the to the way uh, Latour and Bulga are describing um, uh, the um, research technology as an ins inscription machinery. I try to make uh, uh, to differentiate between experimental traces and experimental data in the also in the first part of the book, uh, because I think what we basically have to do with um, when we are doing an experiment is uh, to bring a piece of nature, maybe already in a manipulated state, into contact with a research technology, creating an interface between these two entities so that it sparks, um, that it begins uh, to kind of to, to emit um, uh, traces that we can try to interpret. And these traces are usually of a rather volatile um, uh, shape. They um, uh, come into being and immediately disappear again. So we also have to invent ways of making them durable, which is in a way the actual the process of inscription. Um, whereas the process of the creation of traces is something that belongs to the experimental setup itself. But without this experimental setup and without the interface between scientific object and um, research procedure, we would have no material uh, to, uh, to, uh, to derive inscriptions from. And so this... For me, this differentiation between these two realms has been rather important because I think it helps to really to understand what scientific experimentation is all about. But you're right, um, um, it's a great book, uh, The, uh, the um, Laboratory Life, that itself um, also still relies on a great, a French philosopher of science of the first half of the 20th century, and that is Gaston Bachelard. He actually was also using a little bit this kind of terminology. And so already, in the 19, already in the 1930s. So with respect to history and philosophy of science, we also have to be aware of that we are standing in a tradition and that uh, that history and philosophy of science have a history behind themselves that we should not forget and that is constantly developing.
Yeah, I, I think if I uh, if I may jump on that opportunity, I I think in in uh, part of your book, um, and I think at this point we're in the second in the second half of the book, you try to trace uh, or at least to situate your endeavor within a, a larger, I would say. Um, tradition of uh, trying to think and uh, divide the history of science. And you uh, first uh, mention uh, Gaston Bachelard and uh, his uh, idea of, instead of thinking about scientific discipline, thinking more about scientific neighborhoods or <laughs> quarters. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, Bourdieu's uh, concept of fields. And then you try to situate your own approach uh, to it. What, how, how do you situate here your approach to, um, I would say, finding a, a unit, a historiographical unit for the history of science? Because uh, I, think, I, I think this is what you were, you're trying to get out in the second part of your, of your book. Yeah, I think um, in the second part of the book, what I'm trying to do is uh, to show... Uh, that um, um, uh, that the um, that on on the one hand uh, we have to kind of uh, the close look at the experimental process itself gives us an idea about the objects that are at stake in in science. On the other hand, what we are trying to do is. Uh, um, to report about them, to give a narrative of of, um, of scientific knowledge and its development, and a narrative um, in one way or the other needs an object um, uh, that uh, uh, that uh, creates something like a red thread through the story. And if it comes to historiography, so to history of science, and that was the kind of thing I wanted, uh, I wanted to convey in one of these chapters. I think it, the title is "Narration and Science." Um, help me! I, I lost. <laughs> Let me just find it. Yes, uh, I think it's uh, knowing and narrating. Yeah, knowing and narrating. Yeah. Uh, what what I wanted to convey there is uh, that we um, that according um, to the time scale we are choosing, we also need to choose uh, different entities along which we tell our story as historians of science. And if we are doing case uh, studies, as a lot of um, historians of science do. Um, the, um, an appropriate uh, entity uh, that could help structure uh, your story is, is the notion of experimental system uh, that has a, a limited lifespan of, let's say, 20, 25, maybe even 30 years or cover uh, the productive period of a scientist or of a group of scientists. But if we try to... Uh, to broaden our to broaden our view, and to envisage, for instance, the development of a science like molecular biology over seventy or eighty years now, from the nineteen thirties 
to the 2030s, uh, we have myriads of experimental systems in there, and it would make no sense to kind of take all of them into the story. So we need a different entity that plausibilizes our our historical take. And um, the the kind of suggestion I'm making in this uh, in this chapter is that for, for these time spans that extend over maybe two or even three or four generations of scientists, uh, something like experimental cultures could be uh, the uh, the entity along which to tell uh, to tell a broader story. For instance, in the life sciences, um, the change from in vivo experimentation to in vitro experimentation at the end of the 19th century. And experimentation in vitro um, extended in its various um, um, uh, um, developments and differentiations um, uh, a whole century of work um, with the result that today um, with a refinement of research procedures and the options to make molecules themselves, macromolecules themselves, transform them into molecular tools, um, we have created a situation where we can return into it, the cell in vivo yeah, and make visible what is going on there without having to destroy uh, the cell, which was no option at the beginning of the 20th century. Here again, history is behind it. Research technologies are behind it. Um, and it, um, an experimental culture like an, the in vitro culture of biological experimentation appeared to me to be a good option to tell this process without losing contact with uh, the experimental practice and just telling a story of ideas. I, if we can remain on this on this question of how to tell the story of these uh, experimental sciences and what kind of units uh, you, you mentioned uh, the possibility of thinking in terms of uh, experimental cultures, at least when we're dealing with longer time span. Uh, you write uh, later in your book, um, and I, I quote you here, a narrative is a proper narrative only as long as one can imagine that it could have emerged otherwise, end quote. And uh, how could you just explain how does this apply to the, the history of experimental sciences? And, and when I read this quote, I also gathered that uh, maybe narratives, traditional narratives about experimental science have uh traditionally fell short to be a quote-unquote proper uh, in some way or another? Yeah, because usually what we are doing we, um, or what is frequently being done is telling the story from the point that has been reached back so that you already know what happened and you can kind of um, frame uh, your story that it culminates in the uh, in the most recent accomplishments, and I think that's a um, that's a storytelling with a, a, a teleological endpoint. Yeah, the telos 
um, the aim behind the whole thing is already there. And we tell the story as a inevitable process that is approaching this endpoint. Whereas if you are immersed in an, uh, uh, in a process of gaining knowledge about particular objects that we do not yet have, uh, we do not have this endpoint yet. So the experimental process in itself, if you would like to address the experimental process itself as a story <laughs> or as a narrative, it is a narrative that cannot tell you in advance where it will arrive. So, so if I'm understanding it correctly. Is, it, is very, it is very difficult to convey this uh, uh, this idea in writing, um, finally. Yeah? So because, of course, um, a historian, on the other hand, also inevitably um, uh, um, is aware of uh, the point from which he has to tell the story of the past. So this it, it's a very tricky kind of thing to uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to find a good way uh, to, uh, to deal with. Yeah, I, I feel like what's at stake is writing a history that is not impoverishing in a way what the experimental procedure, uh, the, the richness of the experimental procedure in the first place in terms of, as you mentioned, uh, different ways of visualizing uh contouring objects or things that are that are interest and and i think you make an attempt uh, obviously in this book at uh presenting a way of writing such a history um and uh, you make also an attempt at uh uh in various moments in the book of coining terms i think to to capture this idea and and i'll quote you here like a couple more times um where you talk about uh the tamed fantasy of research. I found this quote absolutely uh, fantastic, but you also talk about the wild in scientific thinking. So it, it, there, there's a lot more other oxymorons as well throughout, throughout the book. And, and I was wondering here, maybe what, uh, if you could explain what you're trying to, to capture in an expression such as the tamed fantasy of research. Yeah, um, what I try to what, what I uh, try to kind of um, uh, to do there and uh, to somehow um, uh, to render uh, palpable um, uh, is uh, that uh, the scientific research process um, is basically about things that um, we do not yet know about enough. Yeah? So otherwise we would not uh, be um, we would not be after. Yeah? So we simply would not, not uh, would not uh, um, um, take upon us all these experimental efforts. We want, we want to know things from which we do not yet know what they are exactly. So we can have hunches and all the kinds of things, but actually the research process is about this ignorance. 
It's not about knowledge. It's about ignorance, yeah, and about um, overcoming ignorance, but in directions that we cannot completely foresee. So there is an element of um, of wildness here. Uh, that uh, if 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 this element is being lost, uh, we ourselves are lost to our procedures, uh, and are more or less doing uninteresting things. Yeah. Uh, so the research process is something that has in its innermost there is a kind of creative force uh, that also. Uh, for, for me, at least, this is the thing that keeps uh, scientists um, in their business for a whole life. Otherwise, they would not uh, spend 30 or 40 years in dusty or bad smelling or whatever laboratories. Actually, as they were of yesterday, maybe uh, in future AI, everything will be clean. Um. You, you end your book on a very uh, interesting note, um, a sort of, uh, you call it a, a eulogy to fragments. And uh, I, I thought it very interesting, I think, because your book obviously has this t- trajectory from taking a, a deeper look into this underworld, as you mentioned, of experimentation and then trying to uh, explain how this look can inform um, the writing of the history of science and, and the history of experimental cultures. Uh, but when it comes to fragments, what's interesting is that I think you're trying to bring both ends together at this, at this point of the, of the book. Um, experimental scientists and historians of science both deal with fragments, you explain. But although in different ways, historians and scientists somehow seem to mirror each each other in a way. They both split and slice. Uh, And I believe that this is what you hinted at, I think, in the introduction of your your book, where you hoped that the term split and splice would not only become, and I quote you, clear, but you also hoped that they would become plastic. And at first I was confused by what you meant here by plastic, but but I think in this sense uh, you meant you meant for your book to end in a world uh, where the historian of science doesn't seem to be scrutinizing the scientist from above or even from within as a sort of ethnologist, but instead the historian at the end is invited to be looking at a mirror, and I mean by that a revert, an inverted image of, uh, of himself or herself. Uh, how, how do you understand here the relationship between historians of science and scientists? What do they have to learn from each other? Because I feel like there's an interesting ending here of how to combine the two. Yeah, I think um, um, uh, in the end, what, 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 what is behind it, and it's, it is very consciously chosen um, as, an end of the, uh, as an end of the book and not as the beginning of a book, you could imagine also that it would make some sense if you put it at the very beginning. So first you take the details and then afterwards the the great picture. And so this I try to invert in the book by putting uh, the the chapter on fragmentation at the very end. So 
it is a kind of rehearsal also. And it basically tries to make the argument, basically tries to make the argument that we could look at doing history of science, so practicing the history of science as an experimental process in itself. So this is what you mean by mimicking. So it, whether mimicking is, is the right word here, I, I, I'm I, not I, I, I would say mirroring sure. in a way. Mirroring. mirroring, yeah, mirroring. Mirrors have also many connotations to them. <laughs> Um, but uh, in the end, basically, that's the argument I try to make, that we also, um, history of science has also to be seen as an experimental process in the end that is developing over time, that is sometimes slowly changing, sometimes um, um, at a quicker uh, pace, and each and every historian of science in one way or the other is whether he, is, he or she is aware of it or not, is contributing its own fragment uh, to the whole story. So there is fragmentation and uh, the notion of fragment is here at different, at different levels and, and in different layers, um, which also in a way tries to capture the, the complexity of the, of the whole book. So... Yeah, I think I think to me this very last uh, chapter of the book on on fragments uh, made me see anew the first part with all these pictures, uh, which I at first I almost automatically looked at them as sources, um, and suddenly I began to see them as fragments instead of possibly a larger picture that uh, is either inaccessible or indirectly accessible somehow. And, and so in, in that sense, I think you, you conveyed that point um, of the historians also dealing with fragments, just like, or dealing, strangely enough, dealing with the fragments that the, uh, <laughs> that the, the scientists are themselves producing. So it's a sort of really, a interesting... Uh, we could put it that way, dealing with uh, a fragment talking about uh, fragmentation and being itself a fragment. So you have three levels. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I would like to end on a more um, uh, uh, a, a broader question um, that, that pertains to, the, to just the, the book itself. Um, uh, in the introduction of your book, you write that the questions raised here have occupied uh, you persistently over the past two decades. Um, so it's obviously a, a, um, a very um, uh, important book in many ways, I'm assuming uh, for, uh, for you as well. Um, and, but interestingly enough, uh, this book is an English version of a prior German edition that was published in 2021. Um, and so as your book itself revolves around the question of repetition and difference and how the process of repetition and differentiation creates instances of new knowledge. I was wondering, because there's no better process of repetition and differentiation than translation <laughs> and rewriting. So you yourself went through that process uh, for this book, Split and Splice. And so I was wondering, 
what new things, what new instances of knowledge maybe emerged for you through that process of, of repetition and differentiation? Yeah, it, it, this is a, is a very interesting and also an intriguing question, but I, I have made the experience already in the book that came out, um, uh, the, the, the book on toward the history of epistemic things um, um, more than 20 years back, um, where the, uh, um, the situation with respect to languages was just the other way around. The first version was an English version, and uh, um, I, it took some time until I had um, a, then a version uh, um, uh, in, uh, in, German, in the German language uh, ready. But in and this time it is the other way around. But for me, a translation has always been something. Um, um, an, uh, an enrichment of your own experience with writing um, and therefore I like and I, I did not have it translated by a translator I did the translation myself uh, with the result that also the book is, has become slightly different so it, it is not a one-to-one -one, um, translation it is a rendering of the, the same or the similar, basically, of course, the same ideas, but in two different languages. And it forces you uh, to kind of express yourself in a slightly different way, according to the language at hand. So, And, and that is the, the difficulty for always the difficulty for somebody who acts as a translator and is forced to kind of narrowly follow the original, which I have not been forced to do. <laughs> so I, uh, I could deal with my own uh, German script. I, it, I could handle it in a different way. And it also um, you also learn from, um, uh, from doing translations. It is the, I would say, the most intense way of reading is translation. And in reading your own stuff, you also, you often come across uh, flawed passages where you kind of have the impression, okay, here I'm hiding something uh, that um, um, I didn't know better. Yeah. Uh, and so, but it is not yet there where it should be. And so these kinds of things, um, of course, then come to the fore when you do a translation. I, I assume it gave you the opportunity to, uh, to delve once more into the, the fantasy of, of your own research, <laughs> if I may say. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor, for your time, for having taken the time to answer my questions and and give some perspective on your new book, uh, Split uh, and uh, yeah, Split and Splice. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>